We're going to continue in our worship now with the reading of the word. And our sermon series is in the book of Acts. And our passage today is chapter 3, verses 11 through 26. I'm going to be reading 11 through verse 20. While the beggar held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, Men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing to him as you can all see. Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Christ would suffer. Repent, then, and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, that is, Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Mackenzie. Good morning, everybody. Walking through Acts. We've been doing this for a couple weeks. And the scene that happened last week is this miraculous healing. And now as Mackenzie reads, we hear this reaction. Peter sees lots of people. And he comes in, and I think what he says to them, if you're listening to what she just read, this is kind of a shocking moment. So I'm going to start this morning with, uh, if you could imagine with me, uh, a shocking moment of, of my own. You'd have to imagine this a little bit. Uh, first, I'd invite you to imagine me wearing a button-down shirt. So it's, you have to stretch a little. Now, imagine that it's actually tucked in, okay? A button-down shirt that I'm tucking in. So for some of you, that's like a dream come true. I think for others, that's a nightmare. So I just try to walk right in between. Here's the deal. I'm in Minnesota. If you could imagine me approaching a, a kind of a typical regular house in a small town in Minnesota, and I'm walking up the, I'm walking up the sidewalk to meet with Pastor Dan, I'm at a place in life where I have, I have just entered into life with Jesus, if you will, for real. And I'm desperate for help, and so I'm going to meet with Pastor Dan. Now, he had invited me. I wasn't just showing up at the door. And, and I came out, and I thought, I've got to have my button-down shirt on. I'm tucking it in. But I was at this place, and some of you have heard my story, have heard this moment. This is a real crucial moment for me. I was at a place in life 
where I literally in my mind was thinking, I am going to do whatever this man tells me to do. Sometimes we see these weird cults that form and we say, why do people get into that kind of nonsense? I would have been one of those guys. I was so broken and so lost that I had come to a place where I thought all of my best wisdom, all of my best decision making, everything that I thought was legit or reasonable has brought me to this spot. And that spot was brutal. I'm I'm, I'm unable to make a decision. I thought to myself, all that I've assumed is pretty clearly wrong. Mackenzie just read this story, and I think there's an epiphany moment that's sort of happening with these guys. We'll read on. It's not with all of them. Some of them are going to dig their heels in even more. But there's this moment where they're sort of facing a reality that they have not wanted to face. I think this text we just read suggests they didn't even know how to face it. It seems that they had made a grave mistake in ignorance. In my life, there was probably a lot of ignorance at play. I think there was also some just straight-up rebellion. But I had come to a place of being totally cut off. I was outside of any reasonable or normal community. I was alone. I was desolate. I was dying inside. It's amazing how you can be in that place and there still are these little markers in life that we'll hang on to to sort of say, no, I'm, I'm not dead yet, I'm okay, but really we're just flickering like a candle going out. So we read this story, they're coming face to face with the brutal reality. We hear Peter telling them, this is your reality. You need to pay attention to your reality. All of your wisest wisdom and best decision making brought you to the place where you killed the Messiah. You were thinking and doing things that you thought were good, but they drove you far from God. And now you're going to want to repent. And I want to say, and I'm going to talk about this through the rest of the sermon, when he says, I I think you need to repent, I think he's saying you need to start doing something new turning toward God, not just saying I'm sorry. So let's go back to Acts 3 in in verse 11. I want to set the scene, and then I want to engage with this story a little bit more deeply, okay? Miraculous healing has just happened, and we noticed it happened outside the temple gate. There's a little picture there of the Spirit of God and the power of God no longer being located just to within the temple. It's going out. So that happened in the previous section. The apostle Peter meets the crippled beggar who can't do much more than panhandle. He's out there begging for money. Everybody in the town knows who this guy is. Peter heals him with nothing more than a spoken word and a touch. He lifts him up, helps him stand up. The town starts talking, okay? There is a buzz in the temple. John is there with Peter. And after the miracle, the dude starts jumping around, and he's jumping and praising God. Scriptures say that they were amazed. The crowds were astonished. They knew who this guy was, and now he is no longer sitting still asking for money. He's singing and jumping and dancing. Verse 12, when Peter saw this, meaning the people gathering around in their amazement, he said to the people, Men of Israel, 
why are you amazed at this? Why do you stare at us as if we had made this man walk by our own power or piety? Notice how Peter picks up on their assumptions. It must be that these guys are super powerful or they're super duper holy. He knows that some of the people in the crowd, after doing what he's done, and they're gathering around and whispering, man, I can't believe what just happened. He knows that some of them are probably looking for the lightning bolt scar on his forehead and wondering, is this guy a wizard, you know, from Great Britain? Is this guy actually a sorcerer? Does he have magical powers inside of him? And then others, probably more, are looking at him and saying, This guy must be so righteous and so holy and so well-behaved that God has rewarded him with a great power, the power to heal or something like that. So they're wondering about what it is. And to either option, Peter says, nope and nope. It's neither one of those. This is not power from me, and it's not because I'm so holy. This power comes from God. I think we still think that way today sometimes. We say, wow, this is an amazing, effective Christian leader. She is so skilled at communication, that's why she's powerful. Or we might say, wow, this is an amazing, effective Christian leader. He is super powerful because he has such a good moral track record. That's why he's powerful. There's been no scandal. We do this, don't we? We find power in things that are actually not that powerful. They were doing the same thing. Peter says, no, that's actually not where the power is from. The power comes from God. Now, that would be good news to Jewish people. Oh, good, the power is from God. We love God, and if the power is from God, that's fantastic. If that power is of God, though, as Peter says, then you guys must have missed something huge, (laughs) okay? He says in verse 13, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, i.e. your God, our God, the God of our forefathers, has glorified his servant, Jesus, whom you handed over and rejected. Now, that's an interesting language right there, his servant, Jesus. First, God is making this miracle happen. That's why the guy who had deformed ankles now has great ankles, jumpable. Uh, God made that happen, and he did it with the same power that we saw in Jesus, his servant, the guy from Nazareth. Yes, the one that went straight up viral up in Galilee and through Jerusalem. Everybody was, yes, that's the one. And Peter says this Jesus is a servant of God himself. Now, it's interesting. Other New Testament authors will, will sort of imply that servant language. In Mark 10, we saw that, where uh, we see language of he came to serve, not to be served. But Luke is the only guy in our New Testament who actually calls Jesus a servant. He uses that language specifically. He uses it several times in Acts. We'll see it again in verse 26 in the last line of our passage today. The servant of God. I want to come back to that because I think it's really important here. I think he's alluding to a prophecy in Isaiah about a suffering servant. This is the one that we've been anticipating. Remember, Peter is preaching primarily, if not exclusively at this point, to Jewish people. And he's using language about a servant who came and suffered. 
And this is the heart of what's going on. But he also says other things in there. You noticed them. He is the Holy One. He is the Righteous One. This is a big one. He is the author of life or the originator of life. Wow. That's a massive statement. He's the resurrected one. This is the reality about Jesus, and this is the reality about what you have done to him. And they're all kind of scratching their heads at this point. We did what now? Yeah, you betrayed the God who gave you life. You killed the Holy One of God. I know that you think you love God and that you believe in him, but the problem is that you couldn't recognize him when he was standing in front of you. And however that happened, you ended up thinking that he was the bad guy. And you executed him. That's a major moment for somebody who loves and believes in God to, to be told this. Uh, say, say that again, Peter. Verse 13, you handed him over, you betrayed him. Verse 14, you rejected him or disowned him. Verse 15, you killed him. Worse than that, you traded out the author of life, the originator of life, for a death bringer, a murderer. You sought fit to pursue that instead. Wait a minute, Peter, are you seriously talking about that low life from Galilee? The carpenter dude from Nazareth? What good comes out of Nazareth? The one who was blaspheming. This is, we're talking about the same guy, right? The blasphemer who was convicted by a court of law according to his peers and sentenced to death? You're saying that guy? Yeah, says Peter, but that description couldn't possibly be more inaccurate. Verse 15, Jesus of Nazareth was the originator of life. Literally the creator of life. In other words, God. It's pretty high Christology here from Peter. And you killed him. But here's the deal. God raised him up from the dead. We all saw this, says Peter. We're the witnesses of what happened. And it is that exact same power to resurrect that you saw at play in the healing of that man who was sitting outside the beautiful gate. That same exact power is at play there. What? Yes, not joking. The beggar who is apparently still jumping around over there, jump around, jump around, jump up, jump up, and get down. He's jumping for joy. He's stoked. And it's because of the power of God. He was healed with that power. Yes, that's him. Now, can you imagine if there are anybody, any people in the crowd who are grasping what he's saying? They're sitting there, and they're whispering and murmuring. Did we really kill the holy servant of God? Peter called him the author of life. That's even more than a servant. That's even bigger. That sounds like we rejected God himself. Is he talking about the suffering servant of Isaiah 52 and 53? Could that be the case? And that was their reality. They rejected God. I suppose that we have all done something pretty similar. Whether out of ignorance or for another reason. And it forces us to ask a question. Why? 
why did they reject Jesus? A holy and godly person. Probably the holiest and most godly person they had ever met or set eyes on. Did they not see how powerful and good and real he was? I think there's many reasons that especially the Jewish leaders rejected Jesus. We could probably talk about those all day. Maybe they were worried about losing their power and status. Maybe they interpreted the Bible very differently than Jesus did and just couldn't see it his way. There's all kinds of reasons that they may have rejected him. But as I watch the story unfold in the Gospels, I cannot help but to see a major, major theme of confusion in some of the Jewish leadership circles. They saw themselves as experts on God and experts on the Bible and experts on religion. But in many ways, they had merely become experts in doing what they wanted to and having the Bible back it up. You ever hear language from people like that? It generally comes from the pharisaical heart. You better be able to back it up with the Bible. I can back up almost any behavior with the Bible. So can you. There's an interesting language there. They had this sense that we are righteous, we are good. And yet they couldn't recognize God, his presence among them. They couldn't recognize God's activity. They saw what Jesus did and they said, what are you doing with sinful people? What are you doing on the Sabbath day? What are you doing? You are not biblical, you see. There's lots of reasons. Sure, they knew the words of Scripture, but I would suggest they got lost in those words. Paul says in another text, they had zeal for God. They loved him, but they lacked knowledge. They got, and I would add, they got lost in the words. It's strange to think that you can be cut off from God and his people by getting lost in the words of Scripture. Ensnared, belaboring small points and missing the point. And after generation upon generation missing the direction they didn't even know how to discern who God was any longer, what he was about, what he was doing in the world. Just remember, Jesus is the word of God, the incarnate word of God. Those so steeped and experted in the word ought to be able, and Jesus says that. If you actually were the experts you think you are in the word of God, you would know me and that the Father sent me. But they were super confused by him. Have you ever listened to a radio person for a while, talk radio or whatever, and then you see their face for the first time on like a billboard or TV, and you're just like, oh my gosh, that is not how I envisioned you. Every time, that's the way I'm just like, gosh, that's what you look like? I, that's not how I saw it. Once my buddy Joe and I, I've got a good buddy named Joe, he lives out east. We were traveling through the desert, and we came to the Grand Canyon. So we camped there for a night. We were just traveling through, but we went up to the ridge, Middle of the summer, you look down to the bottom and you could see people moving around down there like a little campground. And we, in our infinite wisdom, we thought, well, let's, let's go down and check it out. So we start walking down the path to go to the bottom of the Grand Canyon. All right. We were prepped. We had flip-flops and a camera. <laughs> no water, no food, nothing. Just a little pocket camera and some flip-flops tooling on down. We made a couple switchbacks through a couple little tunnels. And then we're greeted with a 20-foot-tall stop sign. Stop, 
And then in the, in the lower, in the writing underneath it, it said a couple of warnings like, it'll be five to 10 degrees, degrees hotter at the bottom of the canyon. So it was 98 where we were. It'll be about 108 down there. That's scorching. Uh, do not, it said, do not attempt to go to the bottom of the canyon floor and back in a single day. We're like, we were, we were shooting for 45 minutes, maybe an hour. <laughs> okay, you know. Then we started to pay attention to the pack mules and people coming up just haggard and sweating. And just, <laughs> we're just like, okay, well, that's good. Right there at that switchback with the stop sign, we're faced with the truth that all of what we had thought we knew was quite wrong. <laughs> we couldn't see as good as we thought. Our depth perception was wonky. You could see people move, you know, it was like, well, that can't be that far away, but it was really far away. Our eyes had not be tra been trained right, so we had a choice. We could choose to stay the course or to repent, which means to turn back. I'm, I'm not actually trying to be funny there, but I'm glad you're laughing. Repentance has a very significant amount of action in it. All through my childhood, I thought repentance and I'm sorry were the same exact thing. Repentance means changing, turning. So I think I was repent. Now, I, wasn't, I didn't feel guilty of sin in the moment that I realized how dumb we were. I felt guilty of being dumb, I guess. Quite truthfully, had we said, yeah, whatever, I don't care what these Grand Canyon scientists know. I'm good. I'm smart. I just need me. You know, I would be dead. I would not have repented. Pay really a close attention here now. To simply agree with the stop sign's warning would not have helped me much. Oh, thank you, stop sign. I agree with you, but I'll keep going. Sometimes we do that. I agree with Jesus' commands. They're the ones that are in the Bible. I know the verses to find them. I'm not going to do them, though. To simply respect and endure the compassion of the person who had put the stop sign there for me. Oh, thank you, person who put the stop sign. You must love me. You're so compassionate toward me. You're saving my life. I'm going to keep going, though. That'd be odd. Joe and I literally needed to bend our will into alignment with the sign's instructions if we were going to survive. So we did. I'll tell you what, that cold cup of water at the top of the... <laughs> you should have seen us when we got to the top. We thought we had just barely taken a small foray, foray down there. By the time we made it all the way back, our legs were burning, we're sweating, we were trashed. That cold cup of water, oh, that was salvation, and it was refreshing. That repentance led to something really good. Once Jesus hits the scene, let's think about this from a different angle. Jesus of Nazareth hits the scene, and that's why we call it 2018 today. His impact on the world cannot be underestimated. This guy came into the world with so much power and so much of whatever it was he did that it changed the way we tell time. I don't know anybody else who claims that. There was nothing more groundbreaking than Jesus. It drew people from all over, but why? Because not only was his power so amazing, but it was how he wielded that power. Do you ever think about that? 
Sometimes I just think, well, I'd, I'd, want, I'd travel a long distance to see a guy who can walk on water and do cool stuff like that. That'd be cool. But he wielded that power in the weirdest way. Borderline insane. He had, for instance, at his fingertips the ability to control weather. We see this in some of his sign acts. He can make it rain. He can make storms stop. He can do whatever he wants to do with the weather. Do you think that would come in handy in an agriculture-driven world? Do you think Jesus could have set up a system, even an, an, a, a farm cropland, where he could have just raked in endless amounts of money and health and wealth for the entire planet? He could bring all storms and systems and rain patterns into control, literally eradicating any kind of famine, any future drought, all of that stuff. So do you think folks would like that? <laughs> a guy who can change the weather, but he didn't. He did enough for us to know that he could, but he didn't start getting into the, I mean, he could have built quite a business. Jesus had the power to raise human beings from the dead, even if they were starting to smell like rotting flesh. Lazarus, can you imagine setting up a legitimate dead-raising business down on the corner? get the cupcakes in the coffee shop, raise the dead. You can go in, and Jesus can raise your loved ones back to life. But he didn't do that. Why? He did it enough to know, to show us that he could. Can you imagine what he could have been like as a physician? You've got stage four cancer. Boop, three seconds, and it's free. You're done. He could have healed Hundreds and hundreds of thousands, millions. And he, didn't even, he wouldn't even need to make money off of that for the people. Just respect and love. Just imagine walking from town to town, literally, not doing anything other than healing every single sickness that he came into. What about a war hero? With the swoop of a hand, he could lay to waste any oppressive empire, any. Free all the people in the world who have been treated unjustly. He had the ability to be loved and worshipped for all that he was and all that he could do. And instead, he used his power to teach people to align their will with God's. He says, if you don't, then you're out of life. The language in the Bible that we just read is, you're destroyed from the community. Cut off from the people of God, which is where life is. Did the Jewish people who were implicated in Jesus' murder love God? I think the New Testament says, yes, they did, deeply. Did the same people expect God to send a Savior? You bet they did. They absolutely did. And would they presumably love that sent one? Yes, that would make a lot of sense. You would think they would just swoon and love the sent one they had been anticipating. But Jesus' first call to them, I mean right out of the gate, just a few switchbacks down, is a 20-foot stop sign. His first call when he starts his ministry, if you remember, right when we opened up in Mark, the first thing he says is, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Stop, turn around, face God, which implies you're not facing God now. Turn to him 
Be ready, this kingdom is coming. This is Jesus' huge command. And I suspect this is probably one of the first things that caused people to say, wait, what? That's a great message for Romans. That's a, for the Roman people, for the Roman centurions and the Roman imperial cult. That's a great message for Gentiles, ungodly people. Why are you telling us to repent? He says, turn toward God. Change your actions and ways of thinking. That's odd to me. For 38 years, I have heard the American pop Christian drumbeat pounding into my, eye, into my head, into my soul. Been pounding this idea in that becoming a Christian means that you fall in love with the Savior and you start reading your Bible a lot. And then you believe that only Jesus can save you from eternal damnation. And if you love God and believe that you're saved by Christ and Christ alone, then you're a heaven-bound Christian. But think about it from a personal angle for a second. This will be a little bit difficult, especially if you've lost a loved one recently. And if you don't want to do this, that's okay. If you can, imagine somebody you truly love who you've lost. Perhaps not even lost to death, but just lost intellectually or mentally. Imagine a poor carpenter named Jesus coming in to your neighborhood and simply asking you, is there anyone who's passed away that you would like to see again? You give Jesus the name. You say, yeah, actually there is. I would love to see, and here's the name. He says, let it be. 10 seconds later, your loved ones are there, fully restored, hugs all around. Tell me what you feel toward Jesus in that moment. Love, respect, honor, thankfulness. Are you not on your knees weeping, totally shocked by the power of God to restore life? Do you not totally believe in Jesus in that moment? Do you not believe that he has the power to bring life from death? Are you not absolutely laid out, falling prostrate on your face, saying, oh my gosh, you are legitimately true. I love you. Thank you. Your heart is open to him. So why does Jesus raise so few people? If, if just doing that, which he can do with, with a word, would, would produce that kind of love in us toward him, if that's the only goal, if that's the biggest thing, why doesn't he go around to people saying, let me help you. Let me show you how good I am at bringing life from death. And then you'll love me and respect me and honor me. I think we've come to the, to the secret, haven't we? He apparently had more to do with us than just causing us to fall in love with him or to believe that only he could save, or to believe that only he was God. He was revealing to us a much bigger reality. 
Jesus was telling us through his ministry that we are not yet ready for his kingdom. That we have to repent because the kingdom is here. Because of his great love, Jesus was not only telling us to stop living apart from God, he was also showing us how to start living with God as one. Just as he and the Father and the Spirit are one. Not my will but yours, says Jesus in the famous moment in Gethsemane where he shows the oneness of human being to God in mutual life, saying, I don't see the wisdom in going to the cross here. Take the cup from me, please, the responsibility, take it. But as much as I see it that way, God, I trust you. Your will, not mine. He stays united to God. He shows us how to do that. He shows how his will is aligned with the Father's will. I'm here to do the will of the one who sent me, he says when he's tempted. He is here to do something more than just have us fall in love and show us how powerful he is and make us believe that he alone can do it. He is actually here and came to this world to bend our will to truly follow after God and live within his life. He's not making his own decisions, is he? He's making all of his decisions with God. Now, Jesus, I don't think, is repenting like I was with Pastor Dan, but there's a piece of that where I came recognizing whenever I make just my own decisions with my little old self, I get into a world of hurt. I need somebody to help me make decisions. There I was looking to another human being, a pastor. Jesus, and I think that pastor would, when he did, he said, you need to start making your decisions with God. Pastor Dan's advice to me was to become a man of God's word, and I think he meant more than the Bible. I think he meant the Bible, but also God's word, a man of Jesus. God does want us to love him and only him. There's no doubt about that. You shall have no gods before me. We, just rec we recite it here often, the Jesus Creed, the Shema. Love the Lord your God. What is the greatest commandment, they ask him? To love God, but here's the problem sometimes. Sometimes we insert our prefabbed definition of love into that language. And we say, okay, I just have to have a warm, affectionate feeling toward God. God does chase us like a jealous husband whose bride has wandered off. His desire for us is that we would have love toward him and affection toward him. There's no doubt about that. The same kind of love you might feel if he came and raised your loved ones from the dead today or healed every disease you have. You would jump up for joy, but a feeling of warm, affectionate appreciation for God is not the ultimate goal, nor is simply believing that he alone has the power. Love in the Bible is always, always tightly bound to bending your will. This is love, that Christ, insert, bent his will into alignment with the Father's so far that he laid down his life for you. This is love, that Christ laid down his life for you. Not this is love that, God, that, that, that Jesus feels great about you. He did something. It's not a reward like, okay, now you said sorry, so you get a prize. 
That's how I thought about it as a kid. If I repent, then I get the prize of heaven. I'm sorry. It's reality in the sense of by repenting, you're becoming one with God and entering into his presence, or you're not. So Peter says to those who have drifted far from God, you see it in verse 19, therefore repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out or blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from what? The presence of the Lord. Is God present in your life? God's presence in your life can be thought of as sort of this ethereal, mystical, imaginary thing, like uh, invisible. Yeah, he's sort of, he's present. I would suggest to you that the more you bend your will into alignment with God's, the more present he is, the more you feel, the more you sort of tap into his energy, his action, his love. It's refreshing. Outside of it, life becomes very, very, very isolating to the point that the Bible talks about being disconnected from God's people is the destruction of life itself. This is a refreshing forgiveness, not just a relieving one. To be relieved because God forgives you means that you were afraid of God and now you're not anymore. To be refreshed because God forgives you means that you are becoming alive in God's life, which means you're changing your old life to align with his, which is verses 25 and 6. Show has a lot to do with listening to and obeying his suffering servant, Jesus, and becoming a blessing to those around you. Isn't that great? How he closes out his sermon, he taps all the way back into, we tap into it all the time, Genesis 12. God blesses Abraham so that he can become a blessing to the world. Here as he closes his sermon out, he says, this is what you were always meant for. Bend your will to align with God's repent. It will be refreshing. I think Peter may be implying that life outside of God's life or life outside of the presence of God is not life at all. We have these little candles at home. Glass, they're in a glass jar. I bet you guys know what I'm talking about. And when, the, when you need to put them out, you can blow them out. I like to put the lid on top and watch the little candle flicker out. When it's time to put out that flame, you put the lid on it. The flame doesn't just pop off, does it? Just sort of slowly dwindles out to nothing. I think that's something like our 70, 80, 90 years of life here. Those few flickering seconds you see in a candle, that's our lifespan, if you will. Sure, you're burning. You have some oxygen. There's even a little bit of light and heat, but it's slowly tapping out. It's slowly fading. It dwindles. You end up isolated, cut off, suffocating, exhausted, trapped. Connected to the community of God, however, living in partnership with him and his people, mutual participation with God, loving one another, bending our will to him instead of self-pursuit, the heart of repentance. It's like a refreshing wind of oxygen always is coming on that flame. It doesn't just fade out. Your flame burns on and on. I think of it like the burning bush. 
this flame within the bush, or even at Pentecost, the flames that look like flames that come upon somebody's head, but they don't consume. You live in alignment with God. You're no longer consuming relationship, but you're giving it. It's totally different than the way of the world. Right there, I hear Peter's words, and, I, and, and they show repentance as a blessing. Verse 26, God raised up his servant and sent him first to you to bless you by turning each one of you from your sins, from your iniquities. It's refreshing. Repentance is life-giving. It's moving back toward wholeness, returning to what is good and beautiful and exciting and alive. I always thought of repentance as this chore that I had to do because I was such a bad guy. It's, it's, it is that in a sense, but it's so much greater in that it's a refreshing blessing to turn from the old way toward God. Jesus calls you and I to repent, not to shame us, but to bless us and to enliven us. Imagine, imagine the hypocrisy that our preacher here, Peter, remember this is Peter, imagine the hypocrisy that he felt when the rooster crowed the third time. Remember the scene? He's denied Jesus enough now. The rooster crows. He has an epiphany moment, doesn't he? My reality is I'm face to face with the fact that I used to swear I would never deny Jesus. I totally loved him. I would n- I'm not that kind of guy, and here I am. He's faced with his reality. He becomes very clear, and he starts doing what? Weeping realizing how far he actually was from God. He, the guy who was just with Jesus in the garden, he realizes, man, I have strayed so far from him. Imagine Jesus' open arms then after the resurrection. Peter is approaching him with great fear, and and Jesus' arms are wide open. And he brings Peter back into relationship. It's an amazing thing, even Peter's own betrayal and the betrayal of the Jewish people, it's the greatest irony in the history of human beings. Their betrayal opens the door for their salvation. Their rejection of Jesus and murdering of him becomes something very different than what they thought it would be. Now Peter can say, as he's being hugged there by Jesus, just feel that hug. That's, that hug is for you too. We all come like Peter and we say, I am so sorry. I have walked so far from you. I did, I did it on Tuesday and Thursday and Friday. I have walked, I keep walking away. I'm so prone to wander. And Jesus wraps you up. I imagine him sitting there with Peter with a, just a life grip of a hug, holding him tight and saying, brother, I'm never leaving you. Our relationship is unbreakable. Our life together is indestructible. This never ends, Peter. Imagine the refreshment Peter feels in that moment. Peter can now say Jesus came for criminals and every Pharisee. He came for hypocrites, even one like me. Hear Peter's gentle voice here in his sermon. I think it reflects the gentle yet powerful deep voice of Jesus who is on the move in our world. Get real. Look at your reality. 
Look honestly at your life. Are your days spent in the peace and in the confidence of your unbreakable life with God? Or are they hectic and exhausting, spent in the angst and fear that is just commonplace in our world? Hear Jesus' voice through Peter's sermon, not condemning the criminals who murdered him, but forgiving them and inviting them into restored relationship with him. That is a picture of God's heart toward you. He wants you to re-enter the oneness that he created humanity to have with him in the first place. One with him. There is one people, one community, one family that will die with Jesus. That's what we celebrate when we'll take the the cup and the bread in just a few moments. There's one death with Christ and with him as well there is one resurrection. We will die with Jesus but we will be raised up with Jesus because this cross that was meant to kill has been transformed into the greatest victory. What a refreshing forgiveness. That's beautiful. To be united with God's people and to be united with the one true and very good God. That is for us. Let's pray. Jesus, we were not there 2,000 years ago. In a very tangible way, we don't stand implicated in your murder. But in a very real way, we do. At the very least, I can recognize, I think I speak on behalf of most here, we can recognize that we reject you and ignore you, and we get really bothered by you, and you ask us to do things that we don't immediately see as wise. I pray that through your spirit here, which is bonding us together with one another and with you, I pray, I ask Jesus that you would help us to see how infinitely smart it is to repent and to receive your forgiveness, to bend our will to fit with your own. And we need one another to learn what that is, and we're gonna spend our entire lives doing it, both here now and on into eternity with you because we do believe you. We trust you, and we love you. Amen.